This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined. As WDET celebrates its 70th year, it is time to raise the funds that we need for the future of Detroit's NPR station. Remember, your support is nearly 50% of WDET's annual budget, so you are a critical part of this celebration, this anniversary, this party that we are throwing. When you make your important gift to celebrate and sustain WDET, today only, you're going to be entered to win one of 20 gift cards to Lily's Seafood Grill and Brewery in Royal Oak. So make your gift right now at WDET.org, and good luck. Uh, Those gift cards are a great incentive to make your gift today, but they, of course, are not the reason. The reason is that you love this station, you love the shows that we bring you, the discussions, the wonderful music, the experience of being part of WDET. Also, remember to join me and my guests uh, next Tuesday, September 10th at the Detroit Public Library for the finale of this summer's WDET Book Club, where we have been reading What the Eyes Don't See by Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. We have been having discussions all over Southeast Michigan uh, all summer, talking not just about the Flint water crisis, which is the subject of Dr. Mona's book, but also about environmentalism, about uh, infrastructure, about clean water, and how we make sure that everybody here in Southeast Michigan does have clean water. Uh, So join us again uh, September 10th at the Detroit Public Library for that finale. Dr. Mona is going to join us for that, as is Senator Jim Ananick, who represents the city of Flint. So that'll be a great discussion for you to be a part of as well. Okay, today we want to talk about the opioid crisis, and we're going to talk about a number of different facets of that crisis. So we're going to start by talking about the lawsuits that are being settled right now uh, and, and what's going on with those settlements and what it means for the future of how we deal with the crisis. But a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by two people on the front lines of this issue, uh, somebody who is working with people who have substance abuse problems here in Wayne County dealing with uh, opioids and the opioid crisis. Uh, And then we're also going to talk with somebody who has struggled with drug use and tried to stay clean, somebody who really understands what the uh, first person kind of emotional perspective is on the opioid crisis. So let's start here. The Sackler family got rich selling the widely abused painkiller OxyContin. And now they're in negotiations with more than 2,000 cities, counties, states, and other organizations that have sued their company, Purdue Pharma. Those governments and other entities accuse the company and the Sackler family of starting and perpetuating the opioid crisis, which has killed more than 200,000 people in the last 20 years. Let's stop for a second and think about that number, 200,000 people over the last 20 years. That's about the population of Grand Rapids here in the state of Michigan. Now, reports last week revealed Purdue Pharma is offering 10 to $12 billion to settle these lawsuits. And under the settlement proposal, the Sacklers would give up control of their company and turn it into a trust. The main purpose of that trust would be to combat 
the consequences, the opioid crisis. Here to talk about that settlement is someone who has been following the issue really closely for a long time and reporting on it for The Washington Post. Lenny Bernstein is a reporter who covers health and medicine at The Washington Post. Lenny, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. So you recently dug into this settlement proposal and reported it in the Post. Um, Is that a big disappointment um, that uh, the Sacklers are going to hold on to their vast fortune, uh, even though they're going to give up control of their company? Is that a big disappointment to people who are hoping to see real justice in this case? I think a lot of people would answer that uh, yes, because what the Sacklers have done very clearly in uh, recent years is to transfer funds out of the company. So between 08 and 16, according to um, a lawsuit filed by the Massachusetts Attorney General, they they transferred uh, $4.3 billion out of the company into uh, more personal accounts. We don't know exactly where it went. So the plaintiffs in these lawsuits have been insisting on at least some contribution from the Sacklers um, into the uh, into the settlement. Um, and right now, it, that's part of the negotiations. The Sacklers want to give back $3 billion. The plaintiffs want them to give more. And I think to answer your first question about disappointment, it will depend on what the final number is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about the, the, the very idea of these lawsuits and this settlement. Uh, this reminds me, I think, a little of what we saw with big tobacco uh, and and the way in which uh, they were held responsible for the public health crisis that they helped create. Is that, a, is that a fair analogy here to what we're seeing with opioids? Very much so, and also to asbestos. Right. Um, the states took the lead. They have been filing the lawsuits. There are 40-plus lawsuits in state courts around the country. The states have reasoned that they have the advantage in state courts. There's also more than 2,000 plaintiffs in a consolidated federal case in Cleveland that's supposed to start in October unless the settlement we were just talking about occurs. Um, So, uh, and those are mostly cities and counties, Native American tribes, hospitals, other groups that feel they were affected by this crisis. So the analogy to tobacco is is quite fitting. And and so what we saw with tobacco, I think, is a really sort of uh, instructive in example in terms of the effect that it had on public health. I mean, if you think about the, the, the way in which we think of cigarettes and smoking today uh, versus before the, the massive lawsuits against tobacco companies, I mean, it's night and day. I mean, uh, cigarettes don't enjoy any of the kinds of, I guess, favor uh, that they did before. Is that possible with something like opioids, which is, of course, very different from tobacco? It's also addictive, uh, but it seems that the effects of this have have reached so much deeper uh, into our culture, even. Uh, Is it possible that this will be the turning point, I guess, for the whole idea of opioids as a public health menace? I think it's going to be one of many inflection points. If you look back over the history of opioids, Prior to the early to mid-1990s, doctors were very conservative about prescribing them. They were for cancer care, cancer pain. They were for end-of-life care. They were, they were for post-surgical pain. Purdue uh, was the leader in persuading doctors and 
the public that these could be taken for uh, all kinds of aches and pains, back pain, knee pain, uh, sprains. They gave them to pregnant women. And there was this whole wave of pain as the fifth vital sign that led to very liberal, very free prescribing of opioids. So then you saw the pendulum swinging way back. And in, uh, it wasn't only Purdue, by the way. There were lots of other drug companies that were along for this ride, but Purdue sort of pioneered it. So in 2012, the prescribing of opioids peaked at 255 million prescriptions in the United States. And ever since then, as word has started to go out that there were lots of problems, most specifically overdose and addiction, the number of prescriptions is sliding rather uh, precipitously. Doctors are becoming conservative. States are putting limits on. There are uh, now databases you can check to see if people are abusing opioids. So what you're seeing is kind of a roller coaster. It goes up, it goes down. Hopefully people will remember this era the next time. And so um, when we think about the settlement, uh, talk about the things that come out of it that will help curb opioid use. The main one is that after Purdue puts itself into bankruptcy and reemerges as a public benefit trust under the control of the bankruptcy, bankruptcy judge and some trustees that he or she will appoint, that company will be producing, that trust will be producing um, anti-addiction medications like buprenorphine mm -hmm. and uh over-the-counter naloxone. Naloxone, as your listeners probably know, is the antidote toward, uh, to um, overdoses. You, you can inject it or you can spray it nasally and it reverses overdose. Sometimes it takes a lot if the, if the drug is fentanyl. Um, the other thing is that company is developing a uh, more powerful antidote. So fentanyl is now the main part of the crisis. It's very difficult to reverse those overdoses sometimes. And Purdue has a drug in development called Nalmaphene that has been fast-tracked by the FDA that would reverse fentanyl overdoses. Now, the problem is none of those have been approved yet. They're in development. They would come along as quickly as possible, but it's hard to put a value on something that as yet isn't on the market. Hmm. <clears throat> what about the role of doctors here? I wonder if uh, th there was much debate about whether the Sacklers and other manufacturers of these drugs were solely responsible for what happened, or whether the doctors that they convinced to prescribe these drugs in the ways that they did, which of course is what led to people becoming addicted, ought also uh, be held responsible. There is blame all along the supply chain of opioids. There's, I don't think there's any disagreement uh, in terms of that. The manufacturers knew what was going on. The distributors, the giant companies that brought the drugs to uh, drugstores, which is the subject of most of the work that we've done here at The Post, they knew what was happening. None of this could have happened without rogue doctors who were willing to prescribe these opioids in just unbelievable, dramatic quantities that could not have happened without people willing to sell their prescription pad for cash or to, you know, to flout the law. And then let's remember that pharmacists have a corresponding responsibility to sort of use their judgment and think to themselves, this guy is coming to order 300, coming to purchase 360 opioids. 
at once. Maybe this is not a legit transaction. So all up and down the supply chain, there are people who are culpable in this. But what people need to remember, your listeners need to remember, is that the distributors, those three major companies, McKesson, Amerisource Bergen, and Cardinal Health, Mm -hmm. and then the smaller ones, the law puts the onus on them to report what they could see were illegal transactions. And so a lot of what you're seeing now is suing of distributors along with the manufacturers. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Lenny Bernstein. He's a reporter who covers health and medicine for The Washington Post. He spent a long time uh, reporting on the opioid crisis uh, and the now profound legal consequences that are unfolding for the companies that make opioids, the companies that distribute opioids, the doctors who prescribe those drugs. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you think justice would look like for victims of the opioid crisis. What's your reaction to this proposed 10 to $12 billion settlement in a lawsuit against the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma for starting and perpetuating the opioid crisis? Does it go far enough? Uh, do you think it's okay that the family will likely hold on to the fortune that they made off of these drugs that have killed more than 200,000 people in the last 20 years? Uh, we especially want to hear from you today if you or someone you know or love has been affected directly by the opioid crisis. What has that meant for you, your family, and your community? And what do you think ought to be done to correct it? What is What does justice look like here uh, after such a massive public health crisis? Of course, here in the state of Michigan, we are not strangers to the idea of public health crises and the consequences that they visit uh, on us uh, and and uh, our loved ones. Um, what do you think about this particular public health crisis, which is national uh, and has, uh, has, as I said a little earlier in the program, has really dug deeply into the culture uh, here in the United States in a way that others have not? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Uh, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation. Um, as always, again, we really want to hear from folks um, who are affected, affected uh, firsthand by this uh, by this problem. Um, uh, Lenny, before I get to the phones, and they are, of course, already lighting up, um, um, uh, talk about what will happen for victims of this, uh, this crisis under this settlement. Uh, how, if you are somebody who uh, uh, was wrongly prescribed or over-prescribed uh, opioids, how do you benefit from this? Well, Mainly you don't. Um, This should not be viewed as a a class action suit where thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people sue these companies. Mm -hmm. You arrive at a number and then it gets divvied up among the, uh, the affected. This is money that is going to go to cities and towns. Uh, to counties, to states, to Native American tribes, to some other groups, uh, basically to spend on abating the crisis. How do you abate the crisis? 
treatment. Lots of treatment facilities will open. So I suppose if you uh, are a substance abuser or a family member is, is a substance abuser, maybe this settlement will help you get someone into treatment. Uh, it will pay for things like naloxone, the antidote that we mentioned. It will pay th for things like foster care for kids whose uh, families, whose parents can no longer take care of them. Uh, NAS babies, those are babies born dependent on opioids who have to be weaned very, very carefully off the drug uh, because it can really harm them. So it it's not a typical damages lawsuit where the families who have lost loved ones to, to overdose can expect a check that in part might might recompense them for, for what they went through. It's more of a an attempt to heal society and to help put in place solutions going forward. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Mike in Detroit. Mike, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for taking my call. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to know, does Mr. Bernstein see a correlation with the U.S. military uh, occupying Afghanistan where most, I, I believe, like 90% of the opium poppy plant is produced and the rise in the, the supply of the, uh, of the uh, opioids that are being distributed as drugs. And then just now, as the lawsuits are coming uh, to fruition, we're announcing that the U.S. military is making steps to withdraw from Afghanistan. Hmm. Well, uh, Mike, that is a that is a really interesting question, uh, Lenny. What is there a connection there? I mean, that's a the the, the the idea of war with the country that produces so much of what's necessary to make these drugs. Uh, it's it sort of seems in time, at least, uh, to juxtapose with the rise in abuse. Uh, let me split the, the question into two. Um, many people, including myself, uh, would be surprised, were surprised, to learn that the uh, opium that is in prescription opioids that is turned into the active ingredient in prescription opioids was grown in Tasmania, the island off of Australia. Hmm. Johnson & Johnson brought over about 60% of the active ingredient uh, used in drugs that were distributed in Oklahoma that came out in, during the Oklahoma trial that just concluded a little while ago. So for that part of the crisis, actually, a lot of this was did not come from Afghanistan. Hmm. I'm less conversant about heroin, which is the second wave of the of the of the ep epidemic, excuse me. And I believe that a lot of heroin in this country does come from Afghanistan. I'm going to ask people to take that with a grain of salt because it's not something I've studied. Hmm. The third wave of the epidemic, of course, is illicit fentanyl, and that's coming from China and Mexico and is being made in labs. So interestingly enough, the prescription pill that you might take for pain after a surgery, the main ingredients probably came from Tasmania. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's a really interesting... I guess spectrum of international involvement, though in this in this crisis. I mean, it, it it's from places all over the globe. It is. Um, it's it's truly a global problem, and I'm sure everybody knows. If you were to magically stamp out poppy growing in Afghanistan, somebody somewhere is going to find another way to grow it. Sure, sure. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for the call and the question. Let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry. Welcome Hi, Stephen. Hey. I just wanted to say 
the hypocrisy in this situation is astounding. We've been throwing young people, particularly young people of color, in jail mm-hmm. for multiple years for simply using marijuana. And now you have a family whose company has been behind this widespread ac- epidemic, and they stand to keep their wealth. They're not in jail. They're going to stay rich. I mean, it's it, the hypocrisy is amazing. Hmm. Uh, Terry, uh, lots of people talking about that, especially right now with uh, the, even the, in, in the presidential contest coming up next year, talking about the ways in which we have dealt with drugs and drug use in the past, the way it looks different now with uh, opioids. Uh, Lenny Bernstein, I'll give you a chance to address some of those differences and why they may exist. Well, the, that is the sentiment that is most often expressed uh, to me, every time I, I read a story like this mm-hmm. um, in the online comments, in the emails I get, in the tweets that I get, um, I cannot explain why this has not been dealt with criminally. There are there are explanations. Um, it is difficult to uh, prove the intent of uh, corporate executives of companies who are sending out legal, regulated medicines that are legitimately used by lots of people, Mm -hmm. it is very difficult to prove that they were intending to commit a crime and therefore should be prosecuted criminally. So the DEA back in 2007 started going after them both civilly and administratively. They were using um, uh, fines basically for the past 12 years or so to try to hold these companies' feet to the fire. Just in the past three months, two different um, U.S. attorneys, one in Ohio and one in New York, have brought criminal charges against two small to medium-sized drug distributors. Those are the companies that bring the pills from the manufacturers to the pharmacies. That's the first time we've seen this in the entire epidemic. And I believe you will see it more, and I believe that you will see it against some of the larger companies, because I think these U.S. attorneys are starting to recognize that civil penalties are not sending the message they want to send. And I think you will see some of these guys facing jail terms. Really? Some of the some of the manufacturers, some of the doctors, some of the distributors, which right. where along the, 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 right the now, chain? Yes, right now it is the uh, distributors, the the executives of the companies that move the drugs from the manufacturers to the pharmacies. But uh, I believe that's going to spread. Mm. I I don't know if you will see a Sackler in handcuffs. I mean, that's, that's way, way, way down the road if mm-hmm. it ever happens. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are criminal charges pending against three executives from two different companies. Mm. Okay, Lenny Bernstein, reporter with the Washington Post who covers health and medicine. It was really great to have you here to kick off this conversation on Detroit Today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, when we come back, we're going to sit down with a woman who oversees Wayne County's efforts to curb opioid abuse and talk with her about her efficacy of medically assisted treatment. We are also going to talk with somebody who is struggling with drug use and to stay drug free. We also want to keep you on the phones. Lots of people obviously want to weigh in on this subject. Colin and Macomb, Bernadette and Redford, Mary Ellen and Gross. 
Point, Dan and Clarkston, Michael and Ferndale will get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. As drug companies have amassed huge fortunes during the opioid crisis, many victims have grappled with how to best deal with addiction. There are now treatments that are proven effective at fighting opioid addiction, and the ones that use narcotics or other drugs to stop cravings are also shrouded in stigma. Sometimes that stigma comes from other groups that seek to help people kick their addictions, 12-step programs, and others that promote abstinence-only methods for addressing addiction are often the ones with little tolerance for what those in the field called medication-assisted treatment. When we think of MAT or MAT programs, we often think of methadone clinics, but there are numerous drugs that are proven safe and effective in treating opioid addiction. Here to talk more about the opioid crisis and about treatment, the stigma against it, and the efforts to help people here in Metro Detroit is Darlene Owens. She is Director of Substance Use Disorders and Initiatives for the Detroit Wayne Mental Health Authority. Darlene, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, and good morning. Yes. Also with us is Bryce R. Cobb, uh, who used AA and abstinence to get clean many years ago. Bryce, welcome to Detroit Today. How you doing? Yes. So, Darlene, I want to start with you. Your organization is involved in the lawsuits that we were talking about in the first part of the program. I would love to get your reaction to the proposed settlements. Um, yes, that is correct, um, that we are... Um, involved in the lawsuit, but I, I really can't talk about it because of litigation still okay. pending. It's still pending. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, do you think, though, that these kinds of lawsuits uh, in general, that litigation uh, is one of the ways that we end up fixing what got broken here? Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. 100%. Okay. Um, uh, talk about the kind of work your organization is doing to help people who have become addicted to opioids. Well, I have to say that we have an array of services that we provide at Detroit Wayne Mental Health Authority. Um, as you talked about, medication-assisted treatment is more than just methadone. We have Suboxone, we have Vivitrol, we have Buprenorphine, but also we have various different things going on. We have a mobile, we have two mobile units actually that go out into the community and high-risk areas to, um, you know, to screen folks, to provide referrals for them to come into treatment services. We're available 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. We're doing a lot with peer recovery coaches, and that's something that I spoke with um, Bryce about. (laughs) And that's something that he is um, going into. And we're putting peer recovery coaches in emergency rooms, um, primary care settings, federally qualified health centers, um, um, what is it, office-based opiate treatment programs. And that's where you have primary care physicians that are basically there to provide Suboxone and Vivitrol, and it takes away the stigma from someone. 
So that way you don't know if they're going there for medical services or if they're going there for um, substance abuse services. So we're looking at all kinds of different ways to get folks into treatment services by taking away stigma and coming to them. We actually have um, like our medication assistant treatment providers. They can actually go pick up clients at their home and take them back, mm. you know, so make sure that they get their medication as well as have their counseling services. So, so talk about this tension between the idea of abstinence only programming and uh, drug assisted programming. In other words, uh, the idea that that uh, there are medications that can help people uh, beat addiction. Uh, what what? What comprises that tension uh, and and how serious is that? Um, When you have to look at it, I mean, before when I first started out in this field, abstinence only was the only way that you could be drug free. We have to look at that everyone is different. All three of us in this room, we're all different and we may recover in a different way. Some people may need medication. Some people may need NAAA. Some people may need talk therapy. So we have to have a variety because one size does not fit all. So I like that we're doing a lot of education with our judges to let them know about the different medication assistant treatment programs that we have going on that's available because that was something else that has stigma against it. Well, they're not clean if they're not doing anything. It's about education, bringing awareness. So that's something that we've been doing around the community all over the place by doing town hall meetings and what have you. Something else that we're doing that we're using naloxone, which is also known as Narcan. We are doing a great job with that. We actually have brought down in Wayne County the um, overdose the overdose deaths. So we have brought it down by 8.2%. So we're very proud of that. Um, 2016, we had 849 deaths. 2017, we had 997. 2018, 915. Mm. So we're going in the right direction. Um, It's going to take time. It didn't start overnight. It's not going to end overnight. Mm. But we have all boots on the ground that are working to help out with this um, epidemic. Mm. Uh, Bryce, I want to have you talk about uh, your experience with addiction, where it started, and then how you got to a place where you felt like you didn't need that uh, anymore. Uh, where I felt like I didn't need the, the substances. Drugs, yeah. Um. Okay. So, my experience um, started with. Uh, now that I know what it was, I was really using to get away from feelings. Mm-hmm. I'm pain adverse. I don't like to feel fear. I don't like to feel anxiety. I don't like to feel anger. I don't like to feel happiness without something to alleviate that. It's just the way that I, I feel. I, I'm just different. I can't. I, I use for those reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was going through it, I didn't know that. But no matter how much I had, there was never enough. So, um, you know, uh, to, to skip the super long story, um, it just had got to a point to where I reached a level of desperation. Um, I didn't want to die necessarily, but I didn't want to live. And it was just this this area of restlessness, irritability, and discontent, and I didn't know what to do. Um, and through uh, a set circumstance, a, a set circumstances, I was able to get into treatment. Um, at at that time, I was employed at Ford Motor Company, and they had uh, a, a, a a section where I can go and talk to somebody, and they helped me get into Maple Grove. And I went and I checked in the rehab, and that's where I was introduced to, you know, a lot of a lot of treatment things. But the thing that has been able to help me maintain my sobriety is a 12-step, mm. and that's where I was introduced to those programs. And um, they told me they gave me the statistics and told me that when I got out of the, out of out of treatment, that the first thing I do is should hit a meeting on the first day, and you know it would up 
up your chances of maintaining sobriety a mm -hmm. certain percentage. And mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. So uh, I got out that day and I went to a meeting and I ended up being my home group. This was six years ago. Uh, can you talk about the point, talk more about, I guess, the point at which you decided you needed to go and seek treatment? Uh, what was it about that moment uh, that, that sent you in a different direction? Well, for me, um, you know, uh, my, my, my substance usage, I was using a lot of prescription pills, Vicodin, Xanax, um, you know, mixing it with alcohol. Uh, and you know there there were some there were some things that were happening, um, but I'm not I'm not sure you're I I've never had a DUI I never I never really you know got caught for mm -hmm. things related to substance abuse it was just the desperation on, in, on the inside of me you know, I got two kids I've been a dad since I was 15 and um, not being able to give my daughter a bath um, the the frustration with myself with not being able to show up anywhere without having something. Um, I used to have this, uh, the, the thing that came to my mind um, towards the end was I'm a shell of a man. Um, I would start the day out and I would have a handful of, you know, prescription pills. And it's like, I'm not me if I don't do this. If I don't, if, and I would say, I don't want to do this, but I would do it anyway because I knew that's what I needed to be able to be anybody. You know, a lot of people, I would see them wake up in the morning and they would wake up and go about their day and I would be jealous because it's like, I can't wake up and go about my day. I have to get right first, if that, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So it had got to a point to where um, I didn't know anything about treatment. I didn't know anything about 12-step. I, I had no awareness of any of this, these things, but um, I knew I needed something. Um, so, you know, it, it, maybe, maybe it was a month of kind of just reaching out. First, I went to my primary care physician and told her, like, you know, look, something's going on. I don't know what it is, but something's going on. And um, I, I don't know if it was different. We didn't, I don't believe we had the resources that we have now then because um, my primary care physician was like, it sounded like you got, you know, this and mm -hmm. gave me a sheet of paper and, and, and said, do this. And I, I didn't, I didn't want to do any of that. You know, <laughs> I just needed help, but I didn't know what type of help I needed. So it took a good five or six times of me just reaching out and letting somebody know, look, I don't know what's going on, but something's not right. And eventually I reached out to the right person and she was this counselor, once again, through Ford Motor Company um, that I had been seeing before and I, I felt pretty comfortable with and I told her like, and she had told me, well, I wish I was a prescribing and I would just prescribe it to you. And I was like, no, that's not what I need, mm. but I don't know what I need. And she was like, well, would you be willing to go, you know, uh, to treatment? And I'm like, well, what's that? And that's how we kind of got the ball rolling. Wow. Wow. Uh, we're talking about uh, opioid addiction uh, and fighting opioid addiction here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, my guests are Darlene Owens, the Director of Substance Use Disorders and Initiatives at the Detroit Wayne Mental Health Authority. Also with us is Bryce R. Cobb, who has been uh, sober since uh, July of 2013. He is at the end of his journey of abuse. Uh, he was using Xanax and Vicodin and other prescription pills. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us how the opioid crisis has affected you. How has it affected people you know? How has it affected your family or your community? Also tell us what you think justice might look like uh, in the case of the companies that manufacture these drugs, the companies that distribute these drugs, the doctors who overprescribe these drugs in some cases. What should happen to them. There is a developing settlement and a very large lawsuit of 10 to $12 billion. Uh, mostly that will go to help fight the opioid crisis. Is that enough? Uh, should there be criminal charges that follow 
the settlement. Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Colin in Macomb. Colin, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Go ahead. It's great to be here. Um, this is such a broad topic. Um, very hits home very hard. Um, when I was, let's see, 25, I became a chronic pain patient. Um, and I was at U of M Hospital on IV Dilaudid for upwards of three weeks. And upon my release, I was given two options, uh, go home with nothing or go to a methadone clinic. And it was a very tough ultimatum, basically, to decide on. And I ended up just going with nothing um, and, you know, finding my own routes and getting second and third and fourth opinions, like Bryce was talking about, um, new doctors getting new opinions about what should actually happen to me. Um, and I've met, I've been met with resistance the whole time. You know, I'm not able to get doctors to lower my dose. I'm not able to get, you know, certain, certain medications. It's been a very, very difficult uphill battle. And I think the Hippocratic oath has to be taken into consideration Hmm. when prescribing these things, you know, first do no harm. Are these medications like methadone and the recommendations that we're giving patients to, you know, take something that potent? Hmm. um, Is that a wise decision? And, you know, should we be considering perhaps, you know, the Suboxone route First, yeah. uh, Colin, I, I really appreciate your call. I, I love uh, the candor uh, that, that you've shared with us here about your situation. Uh, Bryce, I actually want to start with you here. I, I wonder what you make of the decision on your part to do 12-step instead of uh, something like methadone. Like, wh- Was that an option that was given to you? Did you decide that 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 was the way you wanted to do it. How did that play out? Like I said, when I first when I first entered recovery, I didn't know anything about recovery. I just know I just knew that I needed something other than the desperation that I had. Mm-hmm. So um, my specific journey had led me to complete abstinence. Um, there was medication assistance de- detox when I was in when I was in treatment. They gave me phenobarbital so that they, they can decrease my symptoms of withdrawal. Um, and yes, I have practiced complete abstinence, and that's my personal recovery. Mm. But I also have a couple of friends, um, harm reduction. Um, I have a homegirl who uh, she was addicted to crack cocaine, and now her recovery is she smokes marijuana, but that's all she smokes. Now, is, has her life improved? Yes, it has. Um, who am I to determine what somebody else's recovery is? Mm. And, you know, now that I'm going through the Detroit Recovery Project to become a, a certified peer recovery coach, um, I'm being taught a little bit more about others' recoveries. Sure. And I'm, I think it took – everything happens in due time because, like I said, I've been doing this for, you know, six years, but one day at a time at a time. Um, but in those six years, that allowed me to get okay in my recovery and stable in my recovery and be, be able to define what my recovery means to me. And now I'm in a position to help others with their recovery. So, no, I'm not one to judge and, you know, however somebody f- has found a way to improve their lives, I'm just here to help assist to, you know, help them do that better. Hmm. 
Yeah. Um, Darlene, talk about what Colin's sort of raising here in terms of the choices that we try to make about how people can can recover. Well, at Detroit Wayne Mental Health Authority, we believe in choice. And so what we try to do is um, when we uh, engage you in medication-assistant treatment, you work with a physician. And that's something that the two of you work together. It's not about what we want. It's about what you want to do. And what will work for you. Exactly. Because like I said, everyone is different. So um, if methadone is appropriate for you, that's something that you and the physician would go through or if Suboxone would be great or Vivitrol. So that's why we're offering different options and uh, to see what is best for that individual. And some people, like you said, may not want to do any type of medication, and that's fine, and that's why we have various talk therapy. We have outpatient, intensive outpatient, intensive outpatient with domicile. We have withdrawal management programs, formerly called detox programs. Um, We have um, residential services. We have recovery housings. We use acupuncture because acupuncture actually decreases cravings. So we look at a variety of different things. We also have spirituality, faith-based. We believe in that as well. It's whatever works for that individual. So it's not one-stop shop. I mean, it is one-stop shopping. We have that broad array of services that that individual can utilize. So that's something that we do. But it's basically it's with that individual talking with that physician on what best works for that person. And guess what? If that doesn't work, we'll try something else. Try something else, Exactly. Right? Stay at it. Exactly. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation uh, about the opioid crisis and its effects here in Southeast Michigan. Stay with us, and stay with us on the phone. Sammy in Dearborn Heights, Mary Ellen in Gross Point, Dan in Clarkston, Michael in Ferndale. We'll get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are Darlene Owens, Director of Substance Use Disorders and Initiatives at the Detroit Wayne Mental Health Authority, and Bryce Arkob III, who has been sober since July of 2013. He is at the end of his journey of abuse. He used to be addicted to drugs like Xanax, Vicodin, and other prescription pills. Uh, We're talking about the opioid crisis here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, We talked earlier about the massive settlement that is unfolding nationwide uh, with the Sackler family, which uh, manufactures uh, opioids and is uh, somewhat responsible, uh, according to the law at least, uh, for the things that we're seeing in our communities. Uh, We want to hear from you, too. What effect has the opioid crisis had on you or your friends or your family or your community? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Before we get back to phones, Darlene, you wanted to announce a couple of uh, events coming up. Yes. um, September the 14th is Narcon Day. So the state of Michigan, Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, will be have, um, they have ordered 55,000 Narcan kits that were going, that will be going to all the different pharmacists that are, um, what is it, that are um, basically approved to do the standing order. So anyone that has opiate addiction, you can go to CVS, Walmart, um, Walgreens and Rite Aid and some of your local pharmacists and pick up a Narcan kit free of charge. 
So that's on September the 14th. That is all day. That's going to be the only day that they've already been paid for. And you can go pick up those kits without any questions. Also, to let you know that we have Celebrate Recovery. Mm -hmm. That is going to be on Belle Isle. That's an all-day event. Its registration starts at 1030. So that's for anyone that is in treatment, that is in recovery. This is an event for you, your family, to come out and celebrate recovery. To learn a lot of different things that are going on. It's an educational event as well. Mm. Uh, And Bryce, you had a couple of things. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. So um, as I shared my story earlier, when I first had entered recovery, there weren't a lot of resources, but now I'm finding that there are an abundance of resources. Mm. And one of those resources is the Detroit Recovery Project. It's a nonprofit created specifically to help those in need of substance abuse, sure. substance use disorder services. Um, they have outpatient coaches, therapists, counselors, and I'm going to class to be one of those coaches. So you might be able to see me there. <laughs> um, and I've been doing a lot of things in, um, in, in, in hand-to-hand with them. Uh, as, as I'm an artist in the city, Bryce the Third. And one of the things we're doing this month for Recovery Awareness Month, which is September, is a talent show on the 21st, um, a talent show to, to celebrate recovery and also give people the opportunity to showcase their talent. And that will be at the Westside location at one, 1145 West Grand. Um, and we're going to have lots of prizes, like the top three prizes from uh, Grand Boulevard Tattoo. They gifted us some pretty large uh, gift cards. So it will be cool. Mm-hmm. Come out and have fun. Yeah, And that's how Bryce and I I struck up our conversation. Detroit Recovery Project is one of our providers that's in our network. And you can always access services with Detroit Wayne Mental Health Authority at 1-800-241-4949. Okay, let's get back to the phones here. Sammy in Dearborn Heights. Sammy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Okay, I'd like to share my story. I have a son who's 26 years old. Last year in June, he tried to kill himself because he had been going to a pain uh, pain clinic in the city of Warren that has been shut down, thank God. Hmm. There were six, six doctors involved, and what happened is my son had some back issues. So he started going there, and they were giving him back injections. And he didn't live at home, so we didn't we weren't aware of how bad it really was. So a part of this, of getting him back injections, they were giving him all kinds of pain pills. Needless to say, they turned him into a pain pill junkie. Well, he decided he couldn't take it no more, so he tried to kill himself. He was on life support for two weeks. Um, Now the doctors have been all charged, but I don't know what's happening now. It seems like, you know, they shut it down. There was the, the biggest fraud case in Michigan because they were ripping off insurance companies. Wow. But now there's like, if you try to look up this, there's no, nothing happening. Like you can't even find out what's happening with the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that they turned a young boy who had no drug problems into a full-blown pill addict. Right. Well, today he is, in, he is in recovery now. He has some mental health issues going on now too. But he is pain, you know, he's off all the drugs. Right. Sammy, but, you know, Sammy, I really appreciate you calling and and I think it's incredibly brave of you to share that story uh, with with the listeners. Uh, Darlene, talk about uh, the example she's pointing out there. This this kind of rampant abuse, apparently, uh, where there's just no uh, restraint against trying to get somebody to take these drugs. Um, I agree with you. This is something that is 
quite common, actually, that we're seeing. And then a lot of folks have hurt themselves legitimately at work, you know, back issue. Um, They started uh, receiving prescribed prescriptions of opiates. And next thing you know, they can't afford the opiates and then they go to heroin. Mm. So this is something that's quite common and it it happens. But I also thought about um, uh, Sammy. I thought about you. Um, we do have um, Families um, Anonymous Narcotics. I think that would be great for you to go to because that also impacts on you and your family. And so we have two chapters that are in Wayne County. One is Downriver um, uh, Community Conference. Um, that's where you can also get that information. But I can also give you my number or my email, and I can tell you who to contact because I think that would be a resource for you. Um, as well as your son, because they know exactly what you're going through. Their loved ones have went through it. Some have made it, some haven't. But I think it's a great resource for you. Mm-hmm. So my email is D for Darlene mm-hmm. Owens, O-W-E-N-S, at com, And I will give you that information. So send me an email and I'll give you that information for um, FAN. Mm. Wow. Uh, Sammy, again, thanks very much for the call. Uh, and the really honest uh, account of what is happening in your family. Let's go to Michael in Ferndale. Michael, welcome to the program. Mm-hmm. Hi, um, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to give a short uh, informational trip about me. Um, my mom was clinically addicted to painkillers. Uh, she was prescribed them by a physician, and she was given them regularly. Um, I could speak for a long time about her experience with it, but in short, I didn't realize my mother had a problem um, or that the doctors were doing anything that would be considered negligible now until I came home and found my mother dead. Mm. And uh, when I found my mom dead, that was a wake-up call for my whole family. Um, I was able to resuscitate her, and certainly she's alive now. Um, she no longer is on painkillers. She was able to go to a pain clinic in Pontiac and have time to uh, be taken off of them. But yeah. as a young man coming home from college and having your mom take 33 Oxycontin a day prescribed by a doctor, wow. yes, that's a real number. Wow. Um, and thinking back to normal, I think that more people should understand that somebody you know or somebody you see is addicted, yeah. and they're not addicted like a junkie on the street. There's yeah. a lot of people you go to church with, you see at the grocery store, who are addicted, and they deserve the same dignity and respect just yeah. like a junkie deserves dignity right. and respect. Right. Michael... Yeah, Michael, I really appreciate the call and, and again, the, the incredible candor uh, about that. I don't mean to cut you off, but we are going to run out of out of time. Darlene, before we go, I, one of the things I was trying to do here with the calls was highlight how this is everywhere. Uh, we've heard from people all over the metro area. I know you work in Wayne, but this is a problem everywhere here in southeast Michigan. Um, right now, um, it's 10 prepaid inpatient health plans that are, that cross the entire state of Michigan. We're all doing, we all have the same mission. We all want to get people into treatment services as quickly as possible. Um, you can go on Michigan Department of Health and Human Services and find out all of our names and numbers. Um, for us, it is Detroit Wayne Mental Health Authority, the public safety net right here in Wayne County. But Oakland County has the same thing, Macomb County, uh, Mid-State. So you we have coverage. Yes, you can. Okay, Darlene Owens and Bryce R. Cobb III, thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you. Going to do it for me. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.